I'll invite you who are staying here with us to go ahead and take out your Bible this morning to the book of 1 John. And we are continuing our series and endeavor to work through the book of 1 John together. Coming in four or five weeks, we'll take a little bit of a break for the Easter season, and then we'll jump back in. And throughout that time, uh, we'll have a couple of guest speakers in here as well, and some other guys uh, preaching instead of me. So it's good to hear a voice that's not just mine. Um, for you, it's good. Uh, it's probably good for my family as well. And so they'll be here, uh, woven throughout all this stuff. If you remember last week, if you were with us, uh, we spent time looking at kind of the middle section there of, of 1 John chapter 2. And really what we just call was a new command that was put in place out of old roots. And that, let me just refresh you, was the command that, that John reminded us of to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it was a new command because it was reiterated by Jesus when he was on earth, and yet it was also affirmed when it was perfectly fulfilled by Jesus, meaning he was the perfect fulfillment of that command. Jesus was completely obedient to God's will. He was completely obedient to God's commands, and he perfectly fulfilled what it looked like to functionally and practically love his neighbor as himself. And so that was John's reasoning for having it called an old command, right? But also now a new command. And kind of from that basis, John now moves on to what I just consider just more and more practical. It's a reminder here, and we're going to just going to jog your brain one more time of the three themes that we hear woven throughout book of 1 John. Anybody know? You know one of them? True doctrine. Okay? What's the other ones? Or the two? Obedient living? Fervent devotion. Last week, really, what was laid out for us was, right, love God above all things, love your neighbor as yourselves, right? True doctrine. Like, true doctrine was laid out. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. True doctrine, the doctrine of the gospel of Christ, Rolling out into practical living, right? Obedient living. Loving God, first and foremost, is a doctrinal statement. Why would you do that? Because God is holy. He is supreme. He is creator. He is the author of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is the redeemer of life. Right? That's, that's, that's doctrine. That's theological. And then Paul works it out into the practical. So love him with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. To do that is to live obediently. Right? And the devotion of all that is not just subjective to our perspective, but rather it's a command. Right? John wasn't confusing here. He didn't say, if it feels good to you, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Bless you. If it's a, if it's a good day and the sun's shining, it's not snowing, love Jesus with everything you have. No, he says, look, love God with everything that you have. It's an obedience. It's a call to recognize what it is to be obedient to the Lord. And it shows devotion to Him. And this really brings us into, I think, our three pivotal verses of chapter 2, and perhaps the entire writing of 1 John. My guess is, if, if you've been around church culture for any bit of time, you've heard this passage 
perhaps preached on, taught on, if not, nothing else referenced to. But this is a hard one to preach through. For me, it is anyway. Um, because I want us to grasp this, what he's talking about here, deeply. I think this really is one of the most practical means of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I feel the weight of what it looks like to convey this, but I also have the freedom that God's word, not my words, will bury itself deep within you. So I'm going to read this, just these three verses, and we're going to ask God to really drill this and apply this within our lives, okay? Let's look at this. 1 John chapter 2, just verses 15 to 17 today. It says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Simple. There's a lot here, so let's pray. Jesus, would you give great wisdom? Would your spirit accomplish amazing things? that you would greatly understand what it means to be a follower of you. Not you follow us, not you're trying to keep pace with us, but we're following you in obedience here, Lord. In your name, amen. This is challenging. Right? As we're growing to understand about John, right, you, you maybe have noticed some things. John likes to do contrasting. Right? He's, he's used things like light and darkness, Last week was love and hate, right? If you, if you claim to hate your brother, the love of Christ is not in you. He used these type of statements, I think, to really draw that contrast. And drawing that contrast creates kind of that line in the, in the sand. If you claim this, then this cannot be present. John is, is very helpful in this way. He wants those who are following Jesus to fully understand exactly what that means. So to me, John is highly practical. But again, it's driven out of doctrine. It's driven out of theology. So if God, we use this example very early on in this book, if God is this creator God who has just created all things, set it in motion, and has been hands off, well, God doesn't seem very tangible, does he? Right? He doesn't seem like he actually cares about the intimacy of your life. And so maybe then, if that's the case, do his commands really matter? Because he didn't care enough to stick around, according to that view. But if God is the God of the Bible, where he creates all things, and he's designed all things, and then he orchestrates all things, he's what we call sovereign, he continues to to love his creation, to make a way for them to know him through Christ Jesus, then perhaps now we start to say, well, maybe what he says actually does matter then. John wants us and his writer, his audience here, to have a practical understanding of what functional life in Christ looks like. And he's using these contrasting ideas, right? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's used this word love, but now he's compared it to two separate things, the world and the Father. Now John draws another line in the sand. And I think he's attempting to bring just greater and greater clarity. In this case, the one who has given their life to Jesus, right, Lord and Savior, cannot have a divided heart. So let's just be clear. The gospel does not call you to say one prayer in your life, 
feeling bad about things, and then you just check that box off and move on. The gospel calls us to see our brokenness and the holiness of who God is, to understand that He's made a way for our brokenness, our sin to be covered, and for us to be restored in relationship through Jesus, not through our works, through His life, His perfect life, His death, and His resurrection, showing conquering of of sin and death. And we trust in the holiness and the greatness of the gospel. We're asking Jesus to not only be our Savior, but to be our Lord. I I feel like what happens a lot of time with the say a prayer thing, that's the Savior piece of it. Jesus, I'm sorry. I want to go to heaven one day. Please save me. But but Jesus says, man, I'm your Lord and Savior. I I want to be able to say what goes on. I want to be able to, to give you what's best for you. Because Jesus is a good Lord. I think we think someone lording over you, we had that kind of like weightiness pressing down on us. And that's not what Jesus tries to convey. He says, look, I, mean, I want to, I'm what's best for you. And that's what it means to, to, to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the one who claims that, their heart cannot be divided. Meaning we cannot be devoted wholly to Jesus and to something else. And I think that so much of our life is divided. So much gets our attention, but not much gets all of our attention. Meaning this, right? We can sit in, in meetings with people and check email at the same time. Right? Some of us have watches that it just shows up on. So we just kind of see what's going on. Right? And that, that's a divided attention. We're, we're, we're kind of splitting what's going on. Right? We're spending time with people, hanging out with them, but I have to answer this text message real quick. Our, our attention is divided. Or we just like to call it better, we're multitasking. Which science will tell you is virtually impossible. Your brain cannot actually switch and just be doing two things at one time. It, in microseconds, it switches back and forth. So even the appearance of multitasking is not multitasking. You just have the ability to, to switch quickly between things. So much of our lives are not intentionally governed after something specific. And John's now, his attention, as it moves, it states that we, meaning the follower of Jesus, cannot allow for a lack of focus, a lack of devotion, or a lack of sincerity and commitment to be how we define a life with Christ. And I think that's important. I'll say it again, that we cannot allow a lack of focus, a lack of devotion, or a lack of sincerity and commitment to be how we define our lives in Christ. Because I think that that is kind of how we define things. It's half-hearted. It's half-effort. Listen again to his his words here, John's words, in, in just verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Like John's words are not confusing this morning. They're not meant to be. Do not love the world or things in the world. And that should force you to a, to a position to say, what does that actually mean? Because if memory serves me right, back in John's gospel, it said what? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. So now what do we do? 
Jesus, right, God loved the world that he gave his son, right, that whoever believed in him would have eternal life. And now we hear the same writer saying, look, do not love the world. To bring clarity, maybe, in these contrasting statements, right, I think that the world that John is referring to in the gospel was an effort that drew it to compassion, right? That's at large, the world at large, right? Humanity at large. God loves his creation. He created it. And how do we, in fact, definitely know that? Because he didn't wipe it out with a flood. Like you do, if you recall, back at the flood in Genesis, God originally was going to wipe everything out. Like he was just like, he was regretful that he had made humanity and creation. And then in mercy and in grace, Noah and his family and the ark and that whole story, which is fascinating to read through. Well, what does that tell you? That God has a heart for his creation. Hence, for God loved the world that he sent his son. So the world laid out here in 1 John chapter 2, I believe, really is a warning against loving a world system that is opposed to God. It's, it's a warning against loving a world system, right? A worldview, a way we think through and filter through life that is fundamentally opposed to God. See, John is operating from a premise here that the system of life that you and I actually live in day in and day out, it's broken. Meaning sin has impacted every single thing. Sin has woven itself into every facet of life. There is nothing in its natural state that is left free from sin. And so a love of the world or the love of the things the world ultimately leads to a divided heart. It's a love for a, for a system that's broken, that that's not orienting itself after the glory of God and, and his greatness to be made known throughout all of its, its existence. Well, we had a conversation last night just talking about um, just the, the, the political scheme of things. And, you know, you hear the comparison all the time about New England, right? If you don't like it, the weather, it'll, wait a few minutes, it'll change. And that's one of the hardships in the political realm. If you don't like it, it it's going to change. And if you do like it, it's probably going to change. It's just uncertain. It ebb and flows constantly by who's elected. And, and, and that's kind of one of the beauties of our governmental system that we have set up here versus other all right, all right, tyrannical systems that do exist throughout the world where, where evil definitely reigns supreme. Right? But all these things, you know, they, they, they create a sense of angst within us. And as angst exists within us, because we want things to be whole, we don't want them to be broken, we begin to look around us for things that can somehow give some sort of secure feeling to us. We look at life, we look at thoughts, intellect, politics, or other things around us for something that will just give us some sort of semblance that things are okay. But what happens is, at least for the follower of Jesus, that could lead to our hearts being divided, the warning that John is giving to here. The heart that's divided it really is one that's being torn in its affection. One that's being ripped between eternity and and today, one that for lasting and eternal relationship with the Heavenly Father is being lured to temporal satisfaction and so-called fulfillment. This is John's warning. See, as John writes these commands, he writes not only to give instruction, 
but with the hope to guard the follower of Jesus, to protect your heart and your mind, that it would remain in Christ. See, John operates from one big conviction, that Jesus is our very best. Like, that's the foundation that John is operating from. That Jesus is the best thing that you can possibly have on planet Earth and beyond. That in Jesus is our greatest joy, and He is our most prized possession. And don't forget, this was the John that walked with Jesus. This is the John that, that had firsthand experience to say, man, He is better than anything else. And John does have some parallel, doesn't he? Like John didn't come out of the womb, go to church one day, and then Jesus came in and started following Jesus. No, John was called out of his livelihood to follow Jesus. John has the ability to contrast life on planet Earth, trying to just pursue uh, existence, pursue uh, economic um, security, right? He worked, probably pursuing like a normal family life, and then he has Jesus, John understands exactly what he was talking about. John is not talking pie-in-the-sky living. Look, I think the temptation, we look at the Bible and think, man, they don't know how hard it is today. John the Baptist had his head cut off, just so we recall, for being a follower of Jesus. Talk about conflict, like do I pursue Christ or not? And we're like, well, should I talk about Jesus because I might offend my neighbor? They got that. But they, the, the writers here understand the conflict that exists of living life on planet Earth with people around you that may not like what you have to hear or like what you believe in and knowing that there could be really dark consequences for that choice you're about to make to follow Jesus Christ. John is not talking theoretically. He's talking out of the practical experience he knows and understands well. Listen to what Jesus himself said in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When we begin to try to understand what John's talking about, you have to wrestle with the fundamental question is, what to you is of value? What to you is of value? So we talk about this sometimes, like within just kind of church leadership, right? They're, they're just closed fist things when it comes to theology and doctrine, and there are some open-handed things, right? Some closed fist things like, I'm not going to budge on these things, right? We talk about them a lot here, that we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, that Scripture is inerrant, it's God-breathed, it's, it's, there's not a false statement within this book. Like, those are things I'm going to fight about, I'm going to hold them and cling to. And there are other theological matters that I'm going to be more open-ended about. I, I, I see that point. I don't land there, but I can see it, and, and I can see where the scriptures might indicate that. My conviction doesn't land me there. That begins to formulate what we believe that Scripture says begins to formulate what we practically hold to be true and of value. So that statement that you just heard was Jesus talking in a parable form, a story form, but to communicate deeper spiritual truth. The kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure, sorry, like treasure hidden in a field. 
A man finds it, he covers it back up, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys a field. Why does he buy the field? Not because he wants to be a shepherd, but because he knows there's a treasure hidden in that field and it's worth more than anything he has. And so what is a deeper spiritual truth that Jesus is communicating here? That Jesus is worth more than anything planet earth can possibly offer you. Nothing else compares to his value and the value of knowing him. And so the warning of not loving the world really comes with a large contrast. That Jesus in the world, they don't just mingle and they're not equals. Jesus is of greater value than the whole world could offer. But yet, so many of us find ourselves for moments, for seasons of life, for perhaps much of our lives, trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction and a sense of identity in the situations around us, in the entertainment around us, and in those around us, and on and on and on. Listen, this is something that I think we need to get a hold of. And by we, I mean just the church. So much of your life and of my personal life is committed to finding a sense of fulfillment. Like we've kind of conjured up in our mind that, that if I could just attain blank or have blank or, or get a feeling of whatever, that then, then, I will be satisfied. I think we're searching daily for a feeling of being satisfied. We just don't want to wake up tomorrow morning with angst again. We don't want to wake up tomorrow morning feel like we've got to strive and grind at it one more time. We just want to wake up feeling satisfied. Look, and I'm not talking like you ate too much dinner on a, Thursday, on a you know, Thanksgiving day. That's, that's, you went beyond it. I'm talking about like you had just the right amount and you're just content. I think we pine at almost anything we possibly can pine after to get that feeling. And I'm going to ask you, if you've ever had a seemingly euphoric moment of satisfaction, how long did it last you? How long did it actually remain. See, John presses right into this in here. Verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The desires of flesh, anything, like the sinful interest that draws us away from God, or at least makes continuing fellowship with him impossible. That's the desires of flesh. Perhaps sin, but anything that begins to just pull us away from who God is. John warns against that. He recognizes that's part of life on planet Earth. There's desires of flesh. Sin has eked its way into who we are. It's recrafted our desires to not be for our Creator, but to be for something that's far less superior. And we just hope and pray that it can satisfy us. The desires of the eyes, right? It's often a metaphor. The eyes is a kind of the inward glancing to our souls. 
The eye here is likely a metaphor for just the sinful passions that corrupt. And then the pride of life, right? The boaster. That continual arrogance or just subtle elitism that comes from one's view of, look, if we can just become wealthy, if I can just get the right position in our society or, or own my own business or, or master this or that. It's an overconfidence that makes us lose any dependence upon God. And John is warning against all of those things. When our lives begin to not only see life, but the things around us and the people around us as a means to satisfy us, or as Tom Cruise would put it, right, that that you complete me. The minute that we begin to venture down that road, we've moved away from having Jesus at the center of our lives. And listen, what I'm saying is this, like that's not an abandonment from Jesus as your Savior. What I think is that's an abandonment from Jesus as a center of who we are. Like that's our abandonment to Jesus being what can completely satisfy us. To tell somebody else that you complete me is a ridiculous statement. And you're about to show how fickle you really are to what can complete you. Because when that next conflict erupts, are you going to tell that person, you no longer complete me? Of course not. But it's true. That's the reality of that statement. The world, listen, the world, right? Life even in its perfect state, was never meant to fully satisfy Adam and Eve. So put yourself there for a moment, right? You're in the garden. You're Adam or you're Eve. You're there. You're wrestling with a lion. Apparently no clothes to inhibit your your life. Perfect warm temperatures. That tranquil moment was never meant to fully satisfy and I think we've kind of conjured that up in our brains, like that the Garden Eden was so perfect that it was nothing else was needed. It was not meant to be what satisfied Adam and Eve. It was meant to point to a creator. See, when we begin to see people in our jobs or an amazing sunset or the kind of euphoric moment of a newborn child or a spouse, or a perfect home, or any of these things as a means to satisfy us, we are falling short of God's intentions. When we start putting pressure and emphasis into something else to satisfy us that isn't God, we are no longer living obediently or with fervent devotion to Jesus. In fact, I think that we are then allowing those items to fall short of their designated purpose. What is the purpose of a fantastic sunset? I think part of it is to bring you joy. Because there is something about that, right? Especially if it's, like, if you're in Florida right now in February or March. That just just brings you joy. It warms your heart. I think that's part of God's grace. But I believe that a beautiful sunset in all its awe and glory is meant to point and orient our hearts and our minds back to the Creator that would cause us to stop in awe and wonder that he would take the time to create an incredible thing called the sunset. It's meant to draw us to worship. When you have a fantastic steak 
or an unbelievable glass of wine. It is really meant to point you in awe and glory to who God is. To thank him in that moment for making these items and allowing us to enjoy them. It's meant to draw us to worship. That God would give you taste buds, right? That allow you to experience that. Yes, I believe that is meant to draw you to worship a God who created you that uniquely. Who created the cow to be ruled by the human, right? To become food. That's meant to draw to worship. All things are meant to move our lives and our mind to a greatness of Jesus. Everything is meant to do that. And so when John warns against a world system, what he's warning against is everything else is trying to get you to worship it. See how fantastic I am. If you'll pay $1,000 for the newest iPhone, you can be totally fulfilled in how fantastic it is. Be satisfied. Because satisfaction in something apart from Jesus always has a cost to it. Mankind, in our sinful and broken state, we have the most fantastic ability to take things meant for good, meant to draw us to worship and move us toward Jesus, and we ultimately make them and ruin them. Listen, if humanity in its broken and twistedness can take a child and use that child to exploit them because someone wants to stare at a screen and be entertained, we've figured out how to take up what's most beautiful and precious in life and jack it up pretty easily. So to think that we don't take this and do this in other things would be pretty, pretty silly to think about. We may not do things as heinous as enjoy crimes towards kids. But we have the unique power to take things that are not meant to get our heart and to worship them. We give our heart constantly to things that are meant to orient us towards Jesus. And each thing that we trust more than Jesus will eventually disappoint us. It will not complete us. It will probably destroy us if we trust it more than we do Jesus. John, or Jesus said back in John's Gospel, chapter 10, he says, listen, he has come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, listen, don't miss this, because I think there's a misnomer about Christianity. Jesus desperately wants you to have a full and rich life. He desperately wants you to experience all of of what it means to live your whatever, 70, 80, 90, 100 years on planet Earth to the fullest, to the richest possible means that you can. It's just that Jesus gets to define what that is. He does not want you to wake up each day longing for more. He does not want you to wake up tomorrow longing for peace and longing for the Earth and those around us to satisfy us. That's why John says, right, in chapter 2, verse 17 here, the world is passing away along with its desires. <laughs> Just don't forget, uh, we tend to have a life cycle. And Scripture says even this earth has a life cycle. That one day it will be ultimately consumed. There's a new heaven, new earth. I think the new earth will kind of look a lot like this earth, actually. But will be perfect and whole. 
So to put our hope in what we see or find our satisfaction in this created world, it falls short. It falls short. To put your hope of satisfaction in something created instead of the creator, it seems foolish when you phrase it that way, doesn't it? You can experience this thing. It was created by somebody. You can experience this. Or I can introduce you to the guy who created it all. You wouldn't say, no, no, I'll just take the thing. No, no, I want to I know. Right? Like to me, the, the, the Tesla car is a strange thing. I don't, I don't want one because I can't afford one. There's, there's multiple problems here. Someone says, I'll, I'll give you a Tesla. Or I'll let you spend a week with Elon Musk. I'll take the car. It's nice, it's shiny. Like for Mr. Musk, as eccentric and I think half crazy he is, he's a fascinating mind that thinks on a whole other level of life. But we probably take what we can get right now. I'd probably opt for a white model just so we're clear on this, because I think white looks nice and clean. All right. <laughs> right? but I want the rims black. But anyway, okay, right? So we just want it. We create this picture of our mind, like, man, this would be perfect, so I'll take it. And then I'd have to figure out how to charge this stupid thing, and I wouldn't, I apparently can't drive so far before I charge. It would begin to be unsatisfactory. It would begin to break down. When we begin to trust in anything in the created world and depend on that for our satisfaction, we are essentially settling for far less and what God has offered to us. Listen, Jesus is not asking us, right, to just form this kind of mini society away from all the world, to stay away from that, that trapping. Because you, you could go down that road of thought really fast. The world's the evil, then I'm, man, let's just build the walls around this 634 State Street, and we'll just start building little mini tiny houses, and everyone can kind of move together to avoid the world. Right, Kelly, you, yes, all right. <laughs> That's not what he says. Even, even praying for his, his followers, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So you have a daunting task today. I have an, what would seemingly be an overwhelming task today. You are and I are tasked to live on planet Earth, around brokenness, among sinful people, find our fullest joy and satisfaction in the God of the universe. That is challenge but it is not impossible we exist here on earth and jesus wants us to strive like jesus wants us to work he wants us to live life to the fullest he wants us to know that the fullest life is found in a living relationship with him one that's fleshed out under his control and his commands living for his glory and for the good of those around us. Have you not noticed that I pray that way every single time? That God would accomplish whatever we're asking him, ultimately for his glory and for our good. That's the greatest endeavor we can have in life. So, so what, do we can, what can we pursue after that? Jesus. Because if we are finding ourselves satisfied in Jesus, then we're going to live Right, for the glory of God alone and for the good of those around us. 
loving God with all we have, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as yourself is your greatest aim in life. And when we are in Christ, our fullest satisfaction is meant to be found in him. To understand that the gospel has brought us from brokenness and has made us whole again. And then live in that identity, in Christ, trusting what he declares about you. That's gospel living. See, John's desire is that we would settle for nothing less. If you travel the world anywhere, if you're like outside of America, I can get you a $35 Rolex. I can get you one in New York City. And you can buy it, and you can show it to everybody, and you can make it seem like you're carrying around a nice Rolex on your wrist, and you're buying a cheap fake. But it has all the trappings and all the allure and all the appearance of a real one, doesn't it? And then you bring it to the jeweler and say, how much can you give me for this? He tells you, 20 bucks. You overpaid for it. But we settle all the time. We settle all the time in life for something that is not meant to fulfill us. Church, don't settle for less. Do not settle for anything less than Jesus himself. That you would find your fulfillment and your joy and your greatest hope in Christ alone is my prayer for you and for myself. I'm selfish in this case. Like, I want that for me too. And then not just have it be a theory, right, that we can find satisfaction, but have it be a reality for us. And that is the reality of redemption. And so how do we do it? I think we look at the scriptures and see what it says. We remember Paul's words, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To settle ourselves in the gospel. To allow our thoughts to be reoriented around what Jesus calls good and delightful. And that's him. And we have to train ourselves, guys. It's like anything else. Yes, we can pray and ask God to give us freedom, to deliver us from something. Lord, help me to stop eating chocolate. Stop walking down the candy aisle. But God, take that taste bud away. Stop walking down the candy aisle. God could miraculously take that away from you. Pre-diabetic and 40 years of chocolate loving, probably not going to happen though, right? Until you start changing how you're living. Church, we have to start changing how we're thinking. To stop settling for things. Look, things of earth are not all bad. But they're just meant to draw us to greater things. And that greatest thing of all is Jesus. It starts with reshaping our minds. So yeah, have a fantastic meal or a fantastic time with people. And then thank God for that time. Thank God for that meal. Thank God for that opportunity. Because what are you saying? I'm recognizing this comes from you. Like I don't, you don't, I'm not owed this. Because if you think you're owed it, then how are you going to explain that to the people around the world that don't get that? If we recognize things are just more and more of God's grace. I mean, the reality is, and, and, and 
majority of ways, the fact that you were born in America, if that's where you were born, that's God's grace in a lot of ways. You have things like health care available to you. You get to have things that are called jobs pretty readily available to you. But do we recognize that? Even that, like we just assume, we assume, we assume, and we're just how it's supposed to be. Is it? Or is that just God's grace? If we begin to retrain our minds, it maybe starts with that, and then our hearts may follow. Some of it is just we have to confess to the Lord. I don't think this way very often. And it may just be you need to just sit there and just say, Lord, Lord, I'm tired of trying to find satisfaction in everything else. We're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to play uh, that video, Chris, in a minute. And it's just, it's a song. It's just a song. It has some lyrics on the screen. And you can watch that. I probably will end this way instead of the song. Uh, and just give you a chance to, to, to listen to these words, to consider what they are, and to consider what they imply about your life. And maybe today is kind of one of those markers. Maybe today is one of those, I'm going to, a stake goes in the sand, and I'm declaring this right now, that this is what, God, I'm sick of striving, I'm sick of trying to find fulfillment in my spouse. I'm sick of trying to find the next thing that can bring me joy and satisfaction. I want it to be you. And so we're going to listen to the song. If you just listen, think, pray, allow God to do what he wants to do. Okay, go ahead. that I hid away I lay them all at your feet From the corners of my deepest shame The empty places where I've worn your name Show me the love I say I believe
Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth or rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And that's a fantastic reminder that this world is fading. It's fading fast. And even as that song reminds us, like, just the call to lay it down, right? And then asking, Lord, help me to do that. And so this is a challenge. And so we've got to invite God to help us do that. Invite him in to be what satisfies. And then it's just don't, I'm begging you, don't settle for less. Like, don't settle for less. Allow the beauties of life to draw you to worship. Begin by thanking God for creating them and then thanking God for allowing you to experience them. And that just starts the process of living a life that's not loving the world or anything, but finding our full joy and satisfaction in who Christ is as our Savior and the glory of God to be existing in all the earth. Thank God that as incredible as experiences is, he is so much greater. That's John's call for us today. So hard, but so possible. But it takes one to lay this all down before the Lord, trusting in his goodness and his glory. And so my prayer for us as a church family is that we would be fully satisfied people and that satisfaction is out of Jesus Christ. I know we don't usually end a service like this, more of a, a somber feel, but I'm, that's how we're going to end it. And just kind of letting us think and rest in this and let the Lord work as he wants to work in this, okay? So I'm going to pray to that end, and then we're dismissed. You obviously allowed, you know, can hang out and talk if you'd like to, okay? Jesus, as we just try to wrestle through what this actually uh, works, how it works itself out in our lives, we need you and your spirit to give us wisdom. Father, we can confess uh, that we all the time try to get satisfaction and fulfillment out of things around us and people around us. God, we confess that, that we like what's tangible more than, at times, what we uh, know of you and who you are. Father, forgive us. 
We want to lay those things before you, God, the trappings that have gripped and grabbed our hearts, Lord, that are trying to be what we cling to for satisfaction. If I can just have that, or can I just be this type of person, I'll be fully satisfied. God, it will never happen outside of you. So Jesus, help us to cling to you, to cling to the gospel, to have things and people, experiences just really orient our hearts back to you in gratitude for how great and glorious you are, God. It's just one more step in loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as ourselves. Jesus, we need your help. We know that you want to give that to us when we fervently seek you with open and honesty, and we're doing that today, God. So give us wisdom and speak into the hard places. And pray that you accomplish these things for our good and even more so for your glory. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great rest of the day.